0: High Five Podcast. I'm Mindy McGrath, healthcare industry learning lead and public health sector advisor, and I'm joined by my colleague, co-host, and fellow healthcare industry enthusiast, Ryan Hummel.
1: You are listening to the Dynamic High Five Podcast. It's our take on healthcare topics that are real, relevant, and worth talking about. We view healthcare as five interwoven sectors, and we'll be exploring topics related to one or many of these sectors.
0: In today's episode, it's launch time we will break down product launches and life sciences. We'll discuss why product launches are critical to the healthcare industry and life science organizations and how they are changing as the science becomes more sophisticated. And stick around for our parting thought. It's that thing that we've read, seen, or heard about that we'd like to share with you. And joining us today for this episode are our friends and colleagues, Karen Baldry, Life Sciences Sector Advisor, and Chris Savage, Executive, and Launch Guru. Hey guys, how you doing?
1: Hey Mindy, hey Ryan. Hey guys, thanks for joining us.
0: Yeah, so I'm going to tell you right now, like right off the bat, my voice is not very good today because I have a cold, so uh, I'm going to have grovelly voice going on today, which Chris, I think you have the same thing.
2: Yeah, I think all four of us have a little bit of this going on, so uh, it's, uh, it's going to be an interesting day. <laughs> I know. We'll Tis decide. the season. Tis the season is right. The yes, we should shot. know about
0: So, a little housekeeping first. Um, you guys are familiar with the jargon jug uh, that we have here, and Ryan actually still owes money to it. But basically, every time we use industry slang or jargon, a dollar's added to the jug. Um, I actually paid up this morning from our previous podcast. Uh, we don't have much in there, which is actually a good sign because it means we're staying away from jargon and slang. Or
1: well, we're not owning up to our slang, right? One of the two.
0: Right, <laughs> which, which seems to be what's ri- what Ryan is doing. But we're gonna hold everybody accountable in this room, so we leave here today. If there's any slang being used, um, just know I'm gonna collect, okay?
3: Fair enough. <laughs> All
2: right. I'm gonna put my jargon on, uh, on Ryan's tab.
0: That sounds like a good plan. Okay, so sure. let's talk life sciences. You know, it's that time of the year where a lot of us are in hibernation mode because it's the middle of the winter. Um, some of us are watching TV, and on TV right now we have a lot of sports, right? And with those sports and and TV commercials, um, many of them are for pharmaceutical products. And I'll be honest, I was I was watching TV the other day, and there was one particular. Um, commercial that really caught my eye. And it was the Go Boldly campaign that's being sponsored by the industry um, group Pharma. And it really is an effort that's being placed by life sciences organizations to remind stakeholders about the importance of pharmaceutical products to the overall healthcare equation. And some of the groundbreaking work that is being done by life sciences organizations when it comes to things like biopharmaceuticals and genetics Um, So it got me thinking about just the general purpose of medicine. Generally speaking, I think there is definitely a consensus that the purpose of medicine to some extent is to extend and enhance and maximize the quality of life. And if you think back to decades ago, the original purpose of medicine and what medical technology could actually support was really around symptom control. Uh, But as R&D technology has advanced, medicine's purpose has really expanded to be more focused on things like disease progression. And even more recently, the science that's coming of age is advancing to the point where we're actually using the word cure uh, when it comes to some medications. The advancement in drug technology has been tremendous, especially when we're looking at certain disease states. So as we see the industry pivot into these, you know, really advanced complex medicines, and we see how full the life science organization's pipelines are. There's considerable hope, I think, among the population that these complex drugs with pretty complex science are going to solve some pretty complex diseases that we've been trying to get at for a while. Um, so in thinking about these complex medicines in the context of launching a product, The environment has really changed though in the last couple of years. There is so much more of a focus on the price of medications and it's really kind of taken center stage. And the question of who's gonna pay for these complex medications is also part of that discussion. So here's my question to the group. What has and hasn't changed in the industry um, that is making pharma product launches even more critical than they may have been perhaps even a decade ago?
1: Yeah, and, and Mindy, this is Ryan, and I'm going to let the experts get into details about that. But we do know that the pharmaceutical companies and life science firms have, have really long relied on successful launching of new drugs to set up a pattern for long-term success in, in sales and profits from a business standpoint. And, and we also know that products really have to make a, a big splash right away um, upon their introduction. But what's making this process, you know, along with that success, there comes uncertainty of the launch process, and confusion and sometimes frustration. We also have learned that mistakes can set set efforts back years and cost life science companies millions of dollars. So the environment around pharma products is changing, we know, dramatically. And and getting it wrong on a launch or getting it sideways is is really no longer an option.
3: Ryan, you're right, it's it's not an option. And I think about some of the conversations um, that are changing around the industry and are really impacting launch. And Mindy, you know, you talk about sort of the move into specialty and biologics. And and with that, there's so much uh, focus on price and what a drug is really worth. Um, The value story continues to pick up steam and is really a big part of the launch setup. You know, I think about right here in Philadelphia, the recent approval of CAR-T cell therapy to treat children um, and young adults with acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Um, is a great example. So it's, it's priced at $475,000 for one treatment. Patients need only one treatment, ideally. Um, and there are arguments. Is that price too high? Is that price too low? And we're really seeing some interesting payment approaches being implemented based on outcomes.
2: And Karen, another great example. Um, just recently, there was a, um, a product approved for inherited uh, retinal disease. And uh, there was a lot of, of rumor before pricing came out that it could be the first million-dollar drug. Uh, the organization that, that launched that product actually brought it in in the, in the mid 800s, and um, there was an executive at a, at a um, relatively large payer that came out and was talking about the fact that that price, eight hundred plus thousand dollars, was actually a responsible price. So what it was signaling, at least in my mind, is that payers may be interested or willing to pay for high value products that that cause disease intervention and really cause cures or drive cures versus sort of these long-term maintenance medications that have actually been sort of the hallmark of the pharma industry over uh, over the last number of years.
3: Yeah, that's a great point, Chris. Um, and, and sort of stepping back and thinking more about Mindy's question around what else is changing, um, you know, it's not just the pricing. It's also that shift from primary care to specialty, which means smaller number of customers, smaller number of patients. um, And really, the market focus has to be different. So historically, with primary care, it was really sort of volume in the door. And with specialty, it is every patient matters, finding those patients, talking to those patients in a different way. Um, And you just can't invest in the same way because the profitability just doesn't support it. Um, you know, we've talked about higher price tags, and one of the drivers of that is really higher production costs, and the need to recoup those costs on the R and D side, um, and then also payers are more focused on the superiority of new products, and access is a significant challenge for many new pharmaceutical products.
0: Right, and Karen, I think the other thing too is when you think about what's going on in in just the healthcare market as a whole. Life Sciences customers are also evolving. So it used to be very traditional, you know, that they'd sell to a wholesaler, and that's how their drug got distributed into and through the supply chain. But we have seen this, this convergence over the last couple of years where... Health systems are becoming payers as they take on forms like accountable care organizations. Um, we just recently saw CVS make a bid to to jump into the health plan space with Aetna. Um, and that's another, I think, element to what's going on in the industry that pharma has to contend with is that their their customer base is evolving. It's changing. And they have to factor that in as they start to think about um, when they take a product to market. And the other thing to to Chris's point about the pricing, you know, we talk about high prices. And um, I think one of the things that's so important is that pharma be able to um, put it in context, right, in terms of um, the total view. So when we're talking about products that are being priced at six figure dollars, they need to, to be able to say, well, if this product is actually a cure, right? then it offsets years and years and years of having to take maintenance medication or maybe even um, maybe even mitigates having to have things like a transplant, which we know runs into seven figures. So having that complete view of what the value of the drug actually brings versus the total cost of care is, I, I think, another thing that's going on in the industry right now is, as life sciences organizations are, are trying to figure out how do you tell that story and tell it effectively? Um, The other thing too is these health systems that I mentioned, um, as they're morphing, right, and they're starting to collect data, they're becoming more sophisticated and collecting information on the science of medications. And I can see like one of two things happening here. One, that data is used against life sciences and they have to defend kind of their position on a product. Or two, that data is going to be used in a productive manner to really figure out when you're getting the medicine to the right patient at the right time in the right location. And I think there's opportunity there, right, with, um, for life sciences organizations to use things like real world evidence uh, to really not only tell their value story, but help their customers figure out where do we fit in this puzzle of um, delivering care to the right people at the right time. Uh, So one of my questions, I guess, back to the group would be, with all these changes going on in the industry, what's pharma's response been when it comes to launching new products in a rapidly changing environment?
3: You know, Mindy, I think the biggest um, change that we've, we've been seeing is really that change from the blockbuster mindset to the smaller, more frequent launch mindset for these specialty and biologic drugs. You know, I have a, um, a former client and friend who is a really successful marketer. And worked on brand teams for 10 years, and only ever did one launch in those 10 years historically. You know they were used to that big sort of blockbuster model, um, and now we're just seeing a lot. You know, as I said, smaller, more rapid launches, um, and those products are turning them. You know, it's turning them over more quickly. Really, more of almost a consumer packaged goods mindset. Um, we're also seeing, you know, a different Salesforce model. So the sales force needs to be more scientific, um, have more abilities to have a clinical conversation with the customers. We're seeing a streamlining of the launch process. You know, historically, again, in the Blockbuster world, being part of a launch meant almost you had a blank check at your disposal. And we're really seeing tighter timelines, tighter budgets, and a more streamlined launch process. And as I think Ryan mentioned earlier, um, you know, marketing conditions are brutal if a launch goes sideways. Wall Street does not tolerate it. And, and we've seen how damaging it is for pharma companies when this occurs, and how devastating it can be to hopeful patients and prescribers as well.
1: Yeah, thanks, Karen and, and Chris and Minnie for going into details. It kind of reiterates kind of the general statement I made earlier that it's it's a move from a one-size-fits-all approach to a more tailored. And you know, I think that in other podcasts we've talked about consumerism, especially from the provider market. But you know, you just described a shift to more consumerism in this and the idea of launching as well. And given these market conditions and some of the things we're seeing in the industry, there's got to be extreme pressure on not doing things as as we've always done them before, especially when it comes to launch.
0: So Ryan gave us a nice segue into topic two, giving the changing environment life sciences and the healthcare industry in general Chris, has the industry adjusted its launch approach to reflect some of these pretty interesting market conditions? And if so, what is changing?
2: Yeah, I I think we've highlighted a few ways that the industry is changing. And and the answer to this question is, yes, in some ways they're changing. And no, in in other ways, uh, the way to launch a product is is still the same. So uh, Karen mentioned a, a few moments ago Um, the fact that, you know, there's more frequent launches, there's less money that can be invested in in those launches. But when we think about, you know, overall, how do you prepare for a launch, the four questions that that you need to answer sort of have remained the same over time. And we think about that. Um, Do healthcare practitioners believe in the disease? Um, Do healthcare practitioners believe in the method of action, or MOA, uh, for how you'll address that disease? Uh, Do healthcare practitioners believe your product is better than any other product at the class and delivering against that method of action. And then finally, um, can patients get, get access to the product? Um, that includes things like manufacturing, trade, affordability, um, basically all those things that once you've made the decision, make it easy for the patient to actually be able to get the product into their, into their body. So l- let, let's dive into each of those a little bit. So the first question, do healthcare practitioners believe in the disease? Um, I know that sounds like a very odd question to ask, um, but it is an entry point into the prescribing funnel. So in a lot of cases, diabetes, COPD, cancer, the answer is it's very clear. But maybe some other conditions, um, I'll use uh, ED as a, as a great example, might be a little bit less um, less clear for some physicians. So in the case of these later capabilities, you know, consider the investment required to change the healthcare practice practitioner's perception and then how you go about changing it that likely requires a really significant investment in what we call disease state awareness or DSA and likely needs to be delivered through the respect of um, external scientific experts, KOLs, um, key opinion leaders um, at high-profile congresses. So really getting peers to talk to peers about a a disease state to sort of drive that education and and help the the practitioners understand um, the disease state. So uh, question two, do healthcare practitioners believe in the method of action, or MOA, for how you'll address the disease? This will likely require an investment in that same disease state awareness, but it has a slightly modified profile of who can deliver that disease state awareness work. It could be sales representatives having a non-promotional conversation prior to approval, and then continuing to highlight that MOA post-approval and post-launch. There's a great example of of where MOA for a product created a real challenge for life sciences companies. So let's think about the SGLT2 inhibitors. There's a number of products that have been approved um, over the last few years, starting as early as 2013, and and actually one that just got approved uh, in late 2017. For years, healthcare practitioners were trained that glucose in the urine was a sign of -of out-of-control diabetes. However, the SGLT2 inhibitors worked with the kidneys to excrete excess sugar through the urine. So a pathway that for years was considered a sign of bad things is actually a a sign that the medication was working. And it takes a lot of time and effort to make that belief shift. And if the work isn't done upfront, then it's going to be really hard to have a successful launch trajectory. So then question three really comes down to your clinical program and the data behind it. Part of this is launch related, ensuring you have compelling messaging that differentiate your product and part of it involves your ongoing clinical programming. Having new data and progressing the science is hugely valuable when engaging a healthcare practitioner, especially when we think about specialists. And while data can can cut both ways, it's a key investment strategy in today's market to gain traction with healthcare practitioners. And then question four focuses on availability, access, and affordability. Uh, it's funny, when I, when I think about um, sports, which is uh, something I have a passion for, um, one of the, uh, the sayings that I often hear on, on football is, the best ability is availability. And the same case goes for, for pharma products. Stockout in retail f- uh, pharmacy chains are a fantastic way to drive prescribing habits for your competitors because it creates extra work for healthcare practitioners. No one wants to have to rework, and the lack of avail- availability creates rework. In the case of access and affordability, you need to ensure complete alignment. If you're going to invest in access, it's easier to simplify your affordability program. And conversely, if you're unlikely to get significant access at launch, whether it's a crowded market, whether it's an unclear value proposition, or if you're just not interested in paying for it, then you need to invest in your affordability program to ensure patients can still get the product even if they need to deal with prior authorizations and other payer hurdles. Oh, and if you're going to heavy up on access and affordability, make sure you have enough product to support uptake in the marketplace.
1: Yeah, Chris, and you kind of mentioned payer just now, which made me kind of maybe add some, some more kind of questions that I would have or add, is the idea of health plans and health systems and, and adding those into these four questions, especially as we see new, new risk models emerge uh, between these other sectors of healthcare, and And part of the setup, in addition to the four questions you just mentioned, has to hone in on the message, you know, the fundamental question, why is my product better than other products in the market?
0: Yeah, it's definitely, I think those are four common questions. And I think when we look at, you know, beyond healthcare practitioners and start to look at what's going on with, with health plans and uh, with health systems, those four questions make complete sense. It's just a matter of now starting to, to push them out further into what these new kind of evolving customer bases look like. The thing that's interesting to me, like Chris and I have talked about this quite a bit, is some of those common struggles um, that brand teams face when they're launching. And and the fact is that regardless of how well a brand team plans, um, there are going to be things that happen, right? You just, things happen as you're, you're trying to take something, a product to market. And we've highlighted some of the key activities that sometimes have some long lead times to be effective. One of the the most common things that we've seen in terms of struggles is that launch teams are often formed probably later than what's ideal. And thus, there's real pressure on them to be excellent at execution in order to deliver the launch, not only on time, but with the most impact. You know, with that in mind, there really are two parts of the launch, if you think through it. It is the product launch setup and then the execution piece. And both are equally as critical.
2: Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Mindy. And what's interesting is is a lot of times um, when teams are formed late, the initial reaction is we got to start going, we got to start going, we start got to start going, and people will start executing before they've really spent the time to do the launch setup. And when you think about the number of functions and the number of individuals that are that are involved in launches, whether they're small launches, whether they're giant launch teams, there's a lot of different moving parts. And if you don't spend the time up front to get the teams integrated, pointed in the right direction, and making sure you've got those critical touch points between the teams, you're likely going to have to do a lot of rework, and it's going to create some some tricky scenarios as you get closer to launch. So it's worth spending a little bit of time up front, ensuring that you've got folks aligned a- around a common vision, so that you can go execute independently, have the appropriate touch points, and continue to move forward in an efficient manner.
0: Exactly, it's the old adage of measure twice, cut once, right? You only have one launch, Um, one time to launch, and the trajectory of that launch really does set the tone for ultimately whether the brand is going to be successful or not. And we've seen this proven out time and again. Um, And I think the other thing that's interesting, too, is you go through this process, right, of getting teams aligned and getting ready to launch your, your brand, and maybe you get to the point where the launch actually occurs. Launch is not the end, right? It's almost like, just the first step in a process of really transitioning that product now from a concept to an asset that's going to drive revenue, it's going to drive growth, it could be a springboard for other types of, um, other types of opportunities to address other disease states. So launch really kind of tells the market, I think, who your product is, what it does, and why it does it better for the patient and the healthcare practitioner, and ultimately the healthcare industry. And I think generally what we've seen, because we, I'm not gonna age any of us, but we've all been at this for a while in the life sciences industry, but what we've seen is that during that pre-launch planning process or stage that that Chris talked about, are the struggles seem to be common, that there's a lack of communication, there's a lack of clear accountability to hit certain timing, and most probably most importantly, inexperience with launch on the brand team.
3: Mindy, you're right. Those really are the most common struggles that we see. Um, And to combat these struggles, we're seeing a lot of companies develop launch frameworks, and we're even seeing pharma organizations themselves developing a centralized launch function, And, and that's great. But it's important to note that every single launch is different, and a framework that is generic enough to be consumable probably can't address every situation that you're likely to encounter. Um, some, you know, sometimes the situations are environmental, like competitor dynamics or market understanding, or the payer landscape, or just internal variables like the. That senior leader who just went to a conference or just read an article and now has a great new idea for a patient solution that was you know, not part of your original plan, and all of a sudden your launch plan um, has a brand new work stream. So it's it's really hard to replace the experience that comes from you know, really knowing how to launch a product and really understanding all those variables. There's also something around sort of the skill set that's needed, and this is a broad generalization, but... Um, Good marketers don't always have the same skills that drive critical launch execution. Um, And, you know, there are many ways to drive this critical execution, but the key is to create an environment where the team members are clear on what their remit is, uh, ensure team members are held accountable to deliver on their responsibilities, um, and that risks and and issues are identified and addressed quickly. Um, and a few models that w- we've seen work include sort of, you know, basic program management best practices, things like office hours, daily scrums, action meetings, you know, and really putting the, the framework in place to make sure that the team understands what they need to do um, and, you know, able to stick with the plan.
2: That's a great point, Karen. Um, and one of the other areas that, that always seems to be tricky is the what we've missed question. Um, as, as much as I hate to say this out loud, I think... Whenever you're getting ready for, for launch, there's going to be something that you miss, no matter how good your framework is, no matter how much experience the team has. Because of all those changing dynamics and variables in a launch, you're gonna miss something. Um, and identifying it as early as possible is hugely valuable. So here's how we've gone about it in the past. Um, one, build a launch strategy deck. You know, ask people about the rele- for relevant slides across um, a couple of different buckets, preparing the market, preparing the product, preparing the organization, and then finally, the go-to-market phase. Assemble it all together and spend the time to to call it into a usable document that members of the organization can go through in a meaningful way. Um, Areas where the strategies aren't clear will bubble up very quickly um, based on a lack of information and lack of slides. Um, In addition to that, um, just having a strategy deck will help as you onboard new members, as you integrate new leaders into the organization, and if you do identify late in the process where you potentially have some, uh, some gaps, you're going to have a, a brand team that's well-educated on what you're trying to do, which means that you can move resources around um, to, to really um, put your focus on those things that, that need to get addressed quickly so you can actually respond more quickly as, as, uh, as challenges come up. And as part of this launch strategy deck, um, it never hurts to to do a simple um, responsibility accountability uh, matrix um, to identify which tactics are tied to which team. Um, Make it clear and concise, um, and that actually helps from a a launch planning perspective to to hold people accountable. Um, And this one seems really obvious, but it's it's important not to forget the be nice factor. Um, As a launch PM, sometimes it's easier to get tasks completed by using a stick. However, when you, when you have that moment where you've identified what's been missing, having an engaged team that cares about one another is hugely important because then the team is gonna be able to rally rally together. And then finally, you know, think about your execution plan. There's never going to be enough time to do all that you wanna do. So really force the tough questions around what is truly critical to your launch. And as you look at the plan you've developed, ask yourself which of the above four questions that we covered a few moments ago um, does this activity or tactic drive towards? If none, postpone it until after launch. There'll be plenty of time and there'll be plenty of a desire to, to tweak everything that you've done. So, so push it out to launch. Um, if it does answer one of the above four, but there are multiple things that can do the, that can answer that same question, cut it down to one. If you think about it, when a sales representative goes in to have a conversation with an HCP, they have limited time. There's only so much they can do. And so having a few really critical, key, high-quality pieces is far better than having a number of pieces that the rep has to, to, to try to move around to engage the physician. Force people to prioritize. Rank order from 1 to, to 100 if you have to. But you can't make things high, medium, and low. Everything is high. Um, But prioritize across functions and get everyone aligned on the priority. And Chris, thanks. I
1: I think it's great that both you and Karen, we kind of pivoted to more of the people aspect Mm -hmm. and making sure that launch gets that right. And as you were talking about it, I think, you know, one thing I'd like to unpack, even if it's quickly, is about talent, right? So if we think about the skills and the competencies cross-functionally that are needed to set up these launches strategically, Um, They're considerably different from the skills of, say, growing and managing a a market or a brand. Um, Launch is obviously a, a whole different animal, and it gets you thinking about the skill sets that are needed.
3: Yeah, you're so right, Ryan. You know, I'd mentioned earlier that the skills that are needed on a brand team or a marketing team to pull through a brand strategy and related tactics are so different than the skills that are needed to manage a a highly complex and a dynamic launch. And really, every launch is different the needs of the team, the size of the team. And, you know, when I think about doing a skills assessment and really what's needed, there are um, a few things that sort of come to mind. One is, of course, just, you know, critical project planning skills. One is specific therapeutic area knowledge, um, and this is something that can be learned, but learning it quickly is is really critical to success and really understanding the area that you're working in. And then something we're seeing more and more of is really a need for a deep understanding of the market access landscape. We're really seeing increased collaboration between brand teams and market access teams as part of a launch and really ongoing success of a brand. Yeah, launch is such a fascinating topic.
0: I just I love talking about it because all of us have done it, and I think we've seen how important these products are when they come out to the marketplace in terms of meeting patients' needs and prescribers' needs. Uh, it's one of those topics I think we could talk all day about, but we actually need to wrap up this episode. So I want to thank Karen and Chris for being um, part of the, the session today.
1: Thank you, friends.
0: And um, for us. Yeah, we're going to have you back again to talk more life sciences in the future. Now for our parting thought. It's that item that Ryan and I have seen, heard, read, that we want to share with you. So Ryan, I'm going to take a crack at this. Go for it. Uh, I'm going to stick with the life sciences sector and mention something interesting that the FDA is actually doing. There is this enormous amount of discussion about the healthcare system, around patient-centered care and patient experience. I mean, who hasn't taken a medicine or seen a physician or used a medical device? and then tried to find an avenue where they could provide feedback on the experience. And honestly, like up until now, it really has been almost non-existent. For the first time, the FDA Advisory Committee actually um, initiated in October of 2017 an inaugural meeting of this new Patient Engagement Advisory Committee. Uh, The topic focused on the challenges of clinical trial design, conduct, and reporting as identified by patients. Uh, And I think that the interesting thing about this, right, is the FDA chose this subject because Patients often have concerns about participating in clinical trials, or they drop out once they've enrolled in a trial, and the intent is really to engage with and better understand the needs, the views, and the concerns of patients and other users of um, medicines and medical devices. After all, they are, along with their caregivers, the experts in terms of what they're living with and the daily challenges that they face. And accurately capturing that patient view on the acceptable balances of benefits and risks, I think is going to be an important feeder into the future policies that we see coming out of the FDA. You know, we continue to discuss the term consumerism in the industry, and it's interesting to see that this public health agency is creating some sort of a feedback loop for end users of products and services.
1: Right. No, I I think that's a great parting thought. And I I will somewhat stay in the same path of life sciences, but it's kind of that idea of cross-functional healthcare care sectors. Um, in the news recently, uh, there was an announcement that four health systems um, led by Intermountain, or at least primarily by Intermountain Health System in Salt Lake City, which has long been on the forefront of how we deliver care to patients, um, is about to launch a generic drug company. Um, which, which is kind of mind-blowing from a provider perspective. So understanding the, the shortage of generic drugs that are in the market and maybe the high price, they've partnered with three other health systems, and there's also um, some non-financial support from the VA hospitals in creating this, this generic drug company. So the CEO just announced it recently, and I think that is such a, a kind of amazing topic that, that I would have never thought was going to happen until we read the news recently this week. So I'm really excited to see what that means and how life science companies and other payers are gonna to react to this news.
0: Right. so this concludes today's High Five podcast. And we wanna hear from you about today's episode or other topics that are on your mind. Please feel free to contact us at 267-930-4711 and share your message. For additional conversation about the work that we're doing in the healthcare industry or a deeper, deeper follow-up on how Vynamic can assist you with your business initiatives, please contact us at high 5 at That's H-I numeral 5 at Vinamic.com. And if you would like to read more on Life Science product launches, please check out our most recent insight, which can be found at dynamiccom slash insights. And for links to anything that we talked about today, visit our episode's podcast description on your favorite podcast app. Till the next cast, we'll see you soon.